Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And uh, today I'd like to start out by reminding you of a couple things. Wealthformula.com is where the magic happens online. It is a uh, website with a bunch of resources that you need to check out. And it's also the place you're going to go if you want to sign up for our accredited investor group. An accredited investor group is basically, uh, you know, that's where, where all the magic happens, right? So if you are an accredited investor, and what does that mean? It means that you make $200,000 a year uh, for at least two years in a row, $300,000 if filing jointly, or have a net worth of $1 million outside of your uh, personal home. And if you meet these criteria, you are accredited. You do not need to apply for anything. It's sort of like being, you know, pregnant or not pregnant. You either are, you are not. You don't need to apply. Uh, you just are. So if you meet those criteria, go to wealthformula.com and sign up for a credit investor club and uh, we'll talk. Uh, and that's because that's where the magic happens uh, within the um, within the investing space in our community. Now, in terms of today's show, you know, back in college, my two favorite courses uh, were, I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but biochemistry and organic chemistry, okay? The logic there was very soothing to me. And for those of you who have not taken biochemistry or organic chemistry, what I will say is that, that those topics gave me the same type of sense of logical satisfaction, that mathematics did in high school, uh, especially think about like geometry proofs and sort of that moving from one thing to another kind of uh, uh, logical, uh, uh, you know, uh, progress towards an answer, a proof, proof. That's what it means. In other words, proof is a concrete answer. And um, you know what? It's not the type of thing that leaves arguments unsettled. And like you, I um, am a guy who likes money. And I'm interested now these days in how the economy works. And sometimes because of that, I wish I'd studied economics um, so I could really better understand all the nuanced discussions going on these days. I mean, listen, I get it more than your typical typical ex-practicing uh, physician uh, turned investor, but I, um, you know, I, I can't say that I uh, grasp it all. I wish I did, but I, I can't. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, economics itself is not science. It is 
a what's known as a social science. And what that means is that while you can build models and make predictions, it's actually very hard to accurately come up with an answer to a problem, a proof. It's not that exacting, you see. And that's why a room of Ivy League educated economists at the Federal Reserve can look at the same numbers and come up with different conclusions and all be wrong. There is no answer, only theory and forecasts, right? And as an investor like you, I can find that very frustrating. But in fact, um, if you think about it, all the economists are sometimes wrong because the data they focus on ends up not being the right data to look at at all. Case in point. I remember back in the 80s, now, okay, I'm not that, I'm 46, so I was like, you know, I was in middle school or high school during the um, uh, latter part of the 80s, but when everyone was talking about Japan becoming the next financial powerhouse, I remember being in prep school and they offered Chinese, and I'm thinking to myself back in school, I was like, why are they offering Chinese and not Japanese? I mean... I mean, Japan, everybody knows Japan's the, you know, the powerhouse in the future. Well, I guess they knew something I didn't because, listen, virtually no one except Harry Dent, who's our guest on today's show, predicted that Japan would go into a tailspin for the next three decades, the last decades. Harry predicted that would happen because of something that no one else was looking at. He was looking at the fact that Japan's population was shrinking. And he said to himself, less workforce, less productivity, less growth in GDP. Now, today, everyone's looking at China as the next global financial power, right? It certainly has grown at an incredible clip over the last few decades. But China did something uh, that started back in 1979 that could conceivably fail, seal its fate as another failed Asian power, and that is to create a one-child-per-family policy that continued uh, through 2015. Now, China uh, is sitting there in a demographic cliff, right? China Will China become the next Japan over the next few years, or will some other unforeseen variable like you know some kind of uh, AI technologies, et cetera, te technology makes it so you don't need people for productivity, uh, and somehow that comes in to save the day for China. I don't know. There's no way to know for sure. But the the best we can do uh, when we consider, you know, trying to predict these types of things for ourselves as investors is to potentially look at people who are identifying trends that maybe others aren't looking at. Harry Dent has been pretty good at this kind of thing and has a good record of doing this. And right now, just like a lot of Bears, including Peter Schiff, Jim Rickards, you know, the, the usual crew. He's predicting a major financial crisis, but his flavor of Armageddon is a little different. You see, he's predicting a deflationary recession. And hey, believe me, that is very, very different from an inflationary recession like Rickards and, and Schiff predict. Anyway, how would this affect you? Well, that's what you're going to find out today when we come back on Wealth Formula Podcast. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? 
The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Harry S. Dent. Harry is the founder of Dent Research uh, and the newsletter Boom and Bust. Uh, he's also a prolific writer authoring numerous best-selling books over the last few decades, including The Great Boom Ahead in 1992, The Demographic Cliff in 2015, and The Sale of a Lifetime in uh, 2016, and most recently, Zero Hour, which was published in 2017. He also has a, another publication that's available on Amazon called Spending Waves, where he shares decades of extensive research covering over 200 businesses across 14 different industries to give readers a usable tool to find the most lucrative opportunities over the next 20 years. Harry, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Yeah, nice to be here, Buck. Yeah, so, um, you know, you have a, um, uh, it's nice to talk to you. I've, I've, I've read some of your books in the past, and, um, you know, you have a pretty unique approach to your work that I think for um, non-economists, and I, I think even though you're not an economist, you're closer to one than we are, you're a finance person, um, you have a pretty unique approach in that, uh, and that really makes a lot of sense to, I think, common sense, you know, smart people that is focusing heavily on the role of demographics and the outcomes of economies. Uh, in particular, as I recall, uh, you helped predict, or you actually predicted, you were one of the few, if not the only one, really to predict Japan's decline in the 90s uh, when others didn't really see it coming. Can you talk about some of the concepts that make up, you know, demographic predictions based on demographics and ultimately, I guess, what went into the demographic cliff book that you wrote back in 2015. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I focused uh, way back from consulting to fortune 100 companies and then to new ventures where I really learned about the up and coming baby boomers back in the early eighties that were just coming into the economy back then, how big they were. I, you know, I ended up studying for my clients, you know, consumer trends and technology trends. These are the things that really drive our economy. 70% of our GDP is consumer spending. 10% on average is business investment in response to increased consumer spending because they don't without that. And only 20% of it's government. Economists do nothing but stubborn government policies and monetary policies and fiscal 
all nice stuff up to the point, but consumers drive the whole train and government only gets its revenues from taxing consumers and businesses. So that's what I look at. And the first breakthrough I had in the 1980s was what I call the spending wave. I knew exactly when people spend the most money from, from government statistics that only been available since 1981. Uh, every year they do surveys. <clears throat> and, and I can now project when new generations like the baby boom or the Bob Hope World War II generation before them or the millennials coming after, when these generations will spend more money, when they will peak at age 46 for the boomers, 47 for the millennials and for the early zillennials, the next wave after them, it looks like 48 at this point. We'll know better in a few years. But we know exactly when this happens. And that's that told me in 1989 when I came up with this spending indicators back in 1988. Again, my first breakthrough, it told me that after a brief downturn, the U.S. and Europe and most of the world were going to see the greatest boom in history in the 90s. It wouldn't peak until 2007 in momentum from baby boomers. And at the same time, Japan had its baby boom a decade and a half before us, had its whole bubble from them in real estate and stocks, and had their crash coming in, in the 90s. I, I was the only one to see that crash coming. But more important, because somebody that really understood bubbles could have caught that, I was saying that when I said the rest of the world is going to be in the greatest boom in history. So that was really two contrary things, and it came from one simple indicator. Average person enters the workforce today, you know, around age 20, between high school and college graduation, and they will have kids get married, earn and spend money till about age 46 for the boomers, and then they'll spend less predictably. So we could predict an economic boom, the strongest in history in the U.S. from 1983 to 2007, and then growth would slow with the peaking of the baby boomers. And guess what? We've been living off of quantitative easing, endless money printing, goosing up financial assets to at least create a wealth effect while the everyday person spends less and their incomes have gone nowhere for a long time. So this was all foreseeable stuff. And the biggest disagreement I had and why I did start taking economics in college, it was my major until the third course. And I said, enough of this. Economists don't think anybody can predict the economy past the next election because they think it's too complex. The longer-term factors like technological innovation on a 45-year cycle, I found, like a clock, you know, steamships, railroads, automobiles, jet airplanes, and transportation, stuff like that. Generation cycles about every 40 years, but we can project them for each country, and, and they are different in degree and peaks, uh, although a lot of countries peaked around uh, the baby boom in, in, in 2007 or so. Um, and in the emerging world, even more importantly, I can predict which countries are urbanizing the fastest, which is their biggest driver. We're already urban in the developed world and how fast their productivity and GDP per capita is growing. And it's a very predictable straight line relationship in 90% of countries. So I can, I can tell you today that even though everybody thinks China is going to be the largest country in the world and the number one, yes, they will be for a while after a huge setback. And I've got a whole thing on that if you want to know well, how you much know, China's it, overbuilt. Actually, but, Harry, but that's India's a question. going to be the biggest country in the world yeah. decades from now, not China. I that, can predict that today. You think India will be the, the, big, the biggest uh, economy in the world? Yes, the largest economy and as wealthy or slightly more wealthy per capita than China. The difference between India and China is India is 35% urban, China is 60% 
And so everybody thinks, oh, oh India's backward. No, they're just rural. Right. India is richer at 35% GD, uh, urbanization than, than China was and is beating all the other Asian countries, most of them in their growth in GDP per capita urbanization. And they have stronger English and English language and systems background. In, from every angle, if India doesn't totally screw it up, which is right. possible, well, governments still early can do that state, too. they will be yeah. the largest country when Asia dominates the world in coming decades, and they will surpass China probably around 2070. That's a long way away, but they're going to have way faster growth. What China just did in the last three, three and a half decades, India is going to do in the, in, the, in the three to four decades in the next boom after we see a global crash so, in these giant bubbles. Just to, just to ask this question, I think one of the, the things that comes to mind when you talk about China, and I'm very curious about this, because for generation for a generation at least I don't I don't recall when they started it but they had the whole one child uh, per family rule and when is that going to I guess when do the the chickens come home to roost on that if if you're looking at this purely from a demographic um, plunge yeah great question Buck already has their spending wave the first emerging country in the world to peak in demographic trends of growing workforce and earning and spending is China. They already peaked in 2011. They've been declining in workforce ever since. Their population is going to follow after 2027. Um, so, so they're already demographically in decline. Now, they have gone rapidly from 20-some percent urban in the early 80s to now 60%, that has been all of their growth, but they have overbuilt that way in advance, about 10 years over capacity and everything from condos to factory capacity and infrastructures. So they've, they've seen a good bit of their urbanization potential and they've overbuilt. So I think China's gonna be the slowest to recover from the next downturn and India is going to be the growth engine of the world like China was in the last three and a half decades. I mean, that's already built into the cards. China, I, I, the same thing I saw about back in 1989 in Japan. Japan had urbanized rapidly and overbuilt and overstimulated and therefore had all these big bubbles and stuff. But they were at the peak of their demographic curve, just like the Chinese today. But they were also, unlike the Chinese, at the peak of their urbanization curve. So Japan was at its best in 1989 with only down to go and with the bubbles they had i'm like nope japan's going to collapse and they're not going to come back for a long time and you know 30 years later with an aging population they're still not coming back so that, they'll that, never come back and then they're living off of way more stimulus and money printing than we are and still growing at zero to one percent with zero to one percent inflation at best let's talk about not the a good picture let's talk about the u.s real quick um you know you, you brought up the millennials um the millennial generation is not quite as big as the baby boomer generation um is that is that accurate but it's 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 pretty big well there, there's a lot of misinformation about yeah. that Millennials, I look at waves. How much of a wave does a new generation create? The Bob Hope generation back then seemed large, but no. They were like a three-foot wave on, on, on the beach. The baby boom was a 10-foot wave. They went right. from very low birth rates to the highest in history. And the millennials started at much higher birth rates, but they only and they were born over a longer period of time, but they only bring us back in peak births back to where 
the boomers were. And when you calculate in less immigrants into that generation because right. of a decline in immigration since 2001, the, the, the millennials will never take us higher than we are today when they peak fully. And they, they peak around 2036 to 37 in the next boom. They will not, we will never need more homes in this country, never need more cars. And of course, they don't even buy cars as much and they Uber more and they're buying smaller homes and buying them later. So, so again, in, in total numbers, they are larger than the baby boom. But as a way for economic growth, they don't even compare. We peaked with the baby boomers. We plateau with the millennials as a country. That is way better than Europe, which has already peaked with their baby boom generation and will go down much faster than we do in the first uh, in the future slowing. Japan peaked way back actually in 1990s, between 1989 and 96 and their demographic wave and only go lower forever. So we're the best house in the developed world, uh, but in the emerging world, it's all about Asia, ultimately Africa down the road, but they're still going to be poor for a long time. And India and Southeast Asia, by all of my projections, will be where investors should be focusing in the next boom, but we got to wait. India's at new highs and they're going to crash. We're at new highs, even when Europe isn't, and we're going to crash. Everything's going to crash because of the worldwide bubble in stocks and real estate, just like happened in Japan back in 1989 Ford that only I called because I understood bubbles and I understood demographic trends and knew Japan was at their best and the U.S. and Europe and, of course, the emerging world coming was just was just coming along with their baby booms and, and, and could see this huge transition, Japan going down, the rest of the world going. Now, China is the one that's going to suffer the biggest losses. Europe's going to be very slow to come back. U.S. best in the developed world. But Asia, especially Southeast Asia and India, are going to be where most of the growth is going to be in the, in the new emerging world, which is going to become close to developed countries, standard of living in many countries. So it's a it's positive picture, but big crash first, a reset of bubbles, and um, we'll never grow as fast as we did from 1983 to 2007, where basically almost all the world was on fire at the same time. Developed countries are going to be much slower in the future. Emerging countries... Yes, rapid, but still not growing as fast as they did demographically in the future. So demographic slowing and is, is, is going to take trade the next boom that will be strong if you're in the right areas, but it will not, we will not see a repeat of 1983 to 2007. So, you know, a lot of economists or influencers, you know, uh, like yourself and, and Peter Schiff and Jim Rickards, you're all sort of, you know, they're all predicting um, some sort of significant recession or potentially some sort of even some sort of global financial reset. Um, you all yet, even though you all agree on that, presumably because of the bubble that you just discussed, yeah. um, you all have different flavors of what that looks like. Specifically, when you talk about uh, a guy like Peter Schiff, um, you know, his his whole idea is a, is a currency crisis that creates an acceleration inflation but you don't see it that way, do you? Well, I tell you, I don't know why anybody sees it that way. We already saw the beginning of what I call this winter season, <clears throat> debt deleveraging, excessive debt starting to deleverage, demographic slowing. That was all happening in 2008, and 2008 looked just like 1930 until central banks stepped in and has since printed $19 trillion to cover over the debt crisis 
and to compensate for the slowing demographic trends by creating a wealth effect, not more lending in developed countries, only overseas. So, so this is a, a, a whole different era we're in. We're in an artificial bubble. So what, what I and say the gold bugs like Schiff and Rickards agree on, you can't live on debt and artificial stimulation. It's got diminishing returns, and it's like taking a drug. It takes more and more to create less and less until you overtax the system and collapse. The difference, and this is a huge difference between me and them, they see an inflationary outcome because they say, oh, well, governments are printing money to compensate, but they're printing money that's not causing inflation. Why? The government is putting money not into the economy. The banks aren't lending because we all borrowed too much. Consumers and businesses overexpanded in the great boom from 1983 to 2007. The money's gone. The central banks literally buy financial assets. They buy treasury bonds, sovereign bonds, mortgage-backed bonds. Japan's buying their stock market, and Europe's starting to do that. They're putting the money in the financial system to goose up financial assets. Bonds go up in value. Stocks go up the most. Real estate benefits from pushing long-term and short-term rates down, putting more money in the system to chase these financial assets. And at least the top 20% that own, a, which, is, which is your audience, own 88% of these financial assets are doing better, particularly in wealth, and they are spending marginally more, and that only keeps us at a 2% growth rate. So why would Peter Schiff be worrying about inflation when even with all this, the greatest stimulus program in history, we're only growing at 2%, Europe's growing at 1%, and Japan's growing still at near zero, and how much inflation do we have after $19 trillion yeah. printed out of thin air? None. Yep. We're still at zero to two percent. We're of the, not creating consumer inflation. We're creating asset inflation, and that's what's going to cause the bubbles to burst. That's not sustainable. And the big losers are affluent investors when these bubbles burst, because Homer Simpson doesn't own that many stocks and doesn't own that much real estate. The one of the arguments that I've heard uh, on the other side of the idea that the um, stimulus has not really affected or put us into a, 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 an accelerated inflationary environment is that money really never went to directly to people. It went to banks and then they didn't lend it out. Um, is there, would it be different if it was more Ben Bernanke's uh, quoted helicopter money type uh, injection into the economy? Well, okay. All of this is artificial. <clears throat> All of it causes overexpansion over debt and things only makes the bubble. We were already in a bubble before quantitative easing. What happened was the central banks, their intention was to put money in the system and hope that banks would lend it out until they realized, well, nobody wanted to borrow, at least not in developed countries like the U S and Europe. So, but they, I don't think they intended this. The real impact happened because it goosed financial assets so much. There was a wealth of that. I mean, we've created like in the U.S. like $36 trillion in financial asset increases in the last nine to 10 years, way more than any impact on growing GDP or M2 money supply or bank loans or anything like that. That's been the effect. They didn't intend that, but once it happened, it worked enough to keep the economy from collapsing and to have to, you know, write down debts and have banks fail like the 1930s, which is what happens in a deleveraging and should happen up to a point. So they've just been forced to keep this going because at least the wealth effect seems to work well until the bubbles burst. So, so now we just got, we have a greater stock bubble than ever. 
Um, and you know what? Uh, and, I, and I've got all the stats on this. I've shown this in my newsletters up and down the street. The entire stock market boom from early 2009 when it bottomed and QE started has been corporations that have been the only net buyers of stocks over time. Corporations are using increased cash flow from free money and cheap borrowing to buy their own stocks back and reduce the float of the stocks and create earnings per share that has literally but grown 119% faster than actual corporate earnings. GDP has been growing at 2% real for over 10 years, the same rate from 1929 through 40, the Great Depression. We are in a depression with inflated financial assets, which at least makes keeps the economy going somewhat and, and, and keeps the rich feeling richer. And, you know, we, we look at buying in all sectors demographically. Car buying used to peak at 51 after kids got out of college for, for affluent people. And now they're peaking at 64 when their net worth peaked because their net worth has been goosed by quantitative easing, which is goose financial assets. So all of this is unsustainable. But I would say I would have rather if the governments are going to print money for free and throw it in the economy. They don't give it to the financial system and financial speculation. That's where it's gone. Not bank lending, which would have benefited maybe consumers and businesses, all they didn't need. It would have been better if they just sent the checks to Homer Simpson. That would have been real money, real spent, even though I hate to say it, it would have still been wasted. You don't try to get people to spend more money than they need to, or they can afford to, or encourage more debt without making the system already more perverted than it was. It was already back in 2007, I was already in my book showing have the highest debt ratios in history around the world, emerging countries, especially developed countries, and makes 1929 bubble and debt bubble look like nothing. We were already cruising for a bruising. <clears throat> what they did was found that goosing financial assets kept the bubble from bursting but now we have much bigger bubbles, a bigger bubble in real estate. People tell me, oh, Harry, real estate's only about the same level that it was at the last bubble tops. And the economy's a little larger, so it's not that big a deal. No. Net demand, which I can measure from older and younger people trading off, older people are sellers, younger people are buyers, is we're 40% overvalued in real estate compared to the real market versus 20% in 2006 when I did call the real estate peak as well back then. And, and stocks are 120% overvalued versus where my indicators show they should be historically with the demographic cycles. So we have a bigger bubble than ever. And when it bursts, I'm telling you, in, in the world, we're going to see over $100 trillion of assets disappear. And in the United States, financial assets, 50 to $60 trillion is going to disappear in net real estate value, stock value, things like that. And all of a sudden, you're going to see a deflationary crisis, and even rich people are going to stop spending money. And they're the only ones still increasing spending. Homer Simpson's been out of the markets and out of the spending cycle pretty much for two decades now. Yeah, you know the 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 uh, the one question I think I I that always comes to mind when I think of um, you know even if there's a deflationary um, pressures, if as long as there's a deflationary pressures, I would just think that the U.S. government um, or the U.S. monetary and fiscal policy rather would do anything and everything to prevent actual yeah. uh, deflation, uh, because of course that then makes our sovereign debt harder to pay. Right. So I think 
I think that's one of the thing that you have to kind of get over and say, well, is it even feasible? I mean, wouldn't we do something just absolutely, uh, you know, some sort of complete paradigm shift to to avoid that kind of scenario? Well, here, here, here's the problem with that. <clears throat> we already did that. This has never been done before. Printing this much money to stave off a recession, which really was a depression in the making, and and, and to to prevent, literally tell banks, you don't have to mark the market. You don't have to write off bad loans. We, we still have all these bad loans and we have 80, 90% of these derivatives, $650 trillion in crazy leveraged derivatives still in the system. Cause we never see a deleveraging is like detox for an addict. When you get out of balance, you got to get the bad stuff out of your system, excessive unproductive debt. And we still got a ton of it from overborrowing and speculation is still in the system. If you don't get it out, you can't grow again. Japan actually should have had a demographic turn from a smaller but still substantial millennial generation uh, into 2020 from 2003, and they still haven't had a turnaround in real estate at all, very little turnaround in their economy because they're still carrying all these zombie banks and zombie debt which is weighing down the economy while their population continues to age. The government does nothing to boost births. Young people have lost all their benefits to the older generation, and they won't even have sex, nevertheless have kids or date or get married. So, so they're in this, this uh, emergency room coma, and they've been for three decades now. So it shows that money printing will not take you from a winter season to the next spring boom, which is what happened in the 30s to the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Japan never made it because they never deleveraged debt. So by not deleveraging debt, the central banks are hampering our ability to ever recover from this and then summing us to 1% to 2% zombie growth until these bubbles burst, and that will tank the system. So, so you say, okay, okay, well, the system does tank. We start to get deflation and things melt down. Well, then they'll, they'll just print more money. Okay, they printed $19 trillion collectively in the U.S. alone, $4 trillion, and that wasn't enough? So in, in this situation, remember the, the numbers I just quoted? About, a, I'd say, $120 trillion set to disappear just in financial assets and failed loans, 50 to $60 trillion in the U.S. I mean, so you're going to print that much? So they're going to print $60 trillion this time? You, you go to the public and, and, you, and you say, well, last time we printed more than history, went crazy, suppressed interest rates to zero or negative, and it still didn't work. So you know what, folks? We just got to do twice, three times, five times as much. I don't think people will buy that. That's my position. They had their chance. If we end up in a crash, which I see happening in the next year or two, and if it doesn't, I'm going to quit my profession, damn it. If we don't see a major crash set in by 2021, I'm just going to give up and quit. Because if it does, you're going to see a bigger crash, a deeper downturn, and people are going to say, well, wait a minute. You already printed money to try to fix this, and we're in a worse. Why would we believe you this time? I'm sorry. Nope. Let the damn banks fail. And if you're going to print money, as you said earlier, send it to us, please. Right. And, and let me let me ask you the question of follow up on this uh, prediction in the next two years. Of course, you you know, the last book <clears throat> is called Zero Hour. So presumably, um, you know, you, you, this is zero hour that we're in right now. What is it? What's the trigger now? In fact, 
you know, to me, when I think about, you know, what is this zero hour now? I think, well, I don't know. Donald Trump is president. And the next thing that's probably going to happen is there'll be a little bit more injection uh, through elimination of payroll taxes or something like that. Um, This is something this is something that is extremely, I think, in my view, very difficult to predict on a timing basis. Um, Why do you think a year to two years? uh, What what gives you those uh, that that projection? Well, you know, one of the things I did in Zero Hour, I collaborated with a, a, a cycle friend I met uh, from London at a, at a major seminar in Miami in 2008. And, and we kind of collaborated on our, he had great long-term cycles. I had great, about 80% of them overlap, but he kept pushing that WD GAN, the greatest cycle and, and, and trader guy from the early 1900s, insisted that 30 and 60 year commodity inflation cycles. Yeah, I got that one. But he insisted 45 and 90 year cycles were very important. So, so when, when this guy, Andy Pancholi, my co-author kept saying that I went back, I, I got more research and back statistics than anybody in the world. And I found, Oh my God, this 45 year with peak, you know, peak steamships, railroads, like I said, autos, jet travel, this sort of stuff. Oh, there's a 45 year cycle. But most important I found the most important cycle I've ever found every other 45 year technology cycles, you know, like, like steamships and railroads work together to transform world uh, um, travel and, and transportation. Well, electro electricity and electrical appliances first, but then computers and the ultimate internet smartphones on the internet, the ultimate connected global appliances change the world together. You get major super bubbles every 90 years. And and I I knew this from history. I just didn't know why. I've had a chart from the beginning that showed the biggest bubbles in depressions and bursts to follow them were 1837 to 1842 and then 1929 to 1932. And now I'm predicting somewhere around 2020 into 2022 or 23. Those are almost exactly 90 years apart, especially at the bottoms in the crises. So that's why I think this cycle, the, the central bank money printing and the extension of the internet with, with social media, which is the hot thing now, but really nothing like the impact of email and Google and in, 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 the, in the real internet cycle that peaked first. Social media has been hyped up. Now Now blockchain and, and, and cryptocurrencies are being hyped up, which they are the next internet 2.0 and, and, and what I call the internet of money and digitization of finance and financial assets. But they are in the super early stages like the first internet companies, which almost all failed, bubbled up and totally failed. We're at that stage. We're in that hype stage. So this is ahead of us. This is the time where this cycle peaks and I have in, in my books, you'll see in zero hour, and I got another one probably coming out early to mid next year called probably the tipping point. And I look at my key three long-term cycles, geopolitical, demographic spending waves, and technology cycles. They peaked in succession. The geopolitical cycle peaked in 2001 on its good cycle and turned bad with 9-11. We're in the bottoming of that process now, but it's still very negative. The demographic cycle peaked right on cue. I predicted it 20 years before in 2007, the U.S. doesn't bottom until 2023, a few years from now. And the technology cycle is the last to peak right now between late 2019 and early to mid-2020. And it will, will take longer to turn around. All This will be the last 
of the cycles to peak in this Fed printing and central bank printing is literally played into this super bubble cycle. And that's why I say I give this one year tolerance between late 2019 and late 2020. If we don't see a peak in these markets by late 2020, early 2021 and a big crash, then I'm going to say, you know what? Governments have defeated the recession and bubble cycle. Congratulations. It'll never happen. Yeah. I do not believe that'll happen. You do not win by avoiding the truth. You do not win by, by not facing a problem or deleveraging excess debt. You don't win by printing money. It's like you don't win when you're already an addict by taking more of the same drug that got you in trouble. You win by detoxing, even if it's painful, and there's better ways and worse ways to do that. And there's better ways to deleverage the economy than the Great Depression. But we're doing, we're taking the easy way out, and that only makes things worse and makes a bigger crash. But again, if I look at all three of my major, now proven long-term indicators, they coalesce between 2020 and 22 for financial, you know, for the stock market, and in 2023 bottom roughly for the economy in the U.S. And that's what I'm looking at. That's why I say if we don't see in that weakest period these bubbles burst, then, then the governments have done something to stave it off. But even if they do succeed at that, it's the worst scenario because you end up like Japan. Japan has been in a, a long-term off-and-on recession for 30 years. Their bubbles collapsed, but they didn't have a deleveraging of their banking and debt system, and hence they're in a coma economy for 30 years. That's the worst cycle. If we go through this crash in bubbles, we will get rid of a lot of debt. These bubbles will diffuse, and that will allow our economy to grow again with the millennial generation, which is not going to be the baby boom in growth, but it will take us back to at least the heights we've achieved here. And that's going to look very good after this crash. And of course, the emerging world is going to take us to total new heights. Most of the 6 billion people in the world aren't going to peak in spending until many decades from now. They're in the emerging world. That's the next boom. And I've already, I can already predict which countries and when with urbanization and spending will dominate that boom. And for the next boom, especially into 2036, 37, it's going to be Asia led by India and Southeast Asia. So my my listeners are listening right now thinking, well, gosh, what do I do about this? We're heavily, for the most part, uh, my group is heavily invested in apartment buildings, uh, multifamily, uh, you know, uh, real estate. Good. Um, do you have a forecast uh, for what happens? When I look at it, I think to myself, well, well people tend, people seem to be moving more and more into apartment buildings, even the older ones that maybe used to, you know, they're downsizing more. And um, what what's your take on multifamily real estate in particular and maybe some other investments that will do okay? You know, every other sector other than than hotels and, and ultimately uh, cruise ships, which are floating hotels, and ultimately, ultimately assisted living in nursing homes is the best demographic. The aging baby boomers are still going to be the strongest way because they are that. Um, it's just they're going to shift from their peak spending into aging spending, which are things like that. Um, so, so, so that's that's number one. In real estate, the only strong sector has been millennials driving apartments. Now that is peaking because that peaks with the millennials are already at that kind of peak marriage kind of age, 27, 28, and 
and having their first kids and stuff. That starts to peak. But there is a new trend that's never happened before. And I just I've reported this in, in, in my, um, uh, a special report to our newsletter subscribers. The baby boomers are, of course, living longer. But they, as they are selling their McMansions because they don't need them as their kids leave the nest, and saving or preparing or entering retirement, they a, a growing percentage of them are saying, oh, wait a minute, we never saved enough for retirement because we grew up in good times and didn't save like our Bob Hope World War II veteran parents did. And so, you know what, the best way to bridge our gap, we sell that McMansion at a huge profit at the top of this real estate bubble, which I'd say kudos, perfect time to do that. We invest that money in our retirement account to give us our retirement that we never saved enough for. And so why not rent our retirement home, at least at first, if not forever, because hey, it gives us more flexibility anyway, and we're downsizing anyway. A lot of people would downsize, sell that McMansion, and buy a smaller retirement home, maybe closer to the city or maybe a, a townhouse out in the suburbs to be near their kids. But a lot of them, more of them, are renting, and those are the best renters for apartments. They are higher income, higher quality, want more service. They're more loyal. They stick with you longer. You know, they don't default. They don't get drunk and burn down the apartment as often as younger people and all that stuff, as anybody knows in that business. It's that this is the best place to be. Now, number one, when you have deflation, what I call the winter season, very few financial assets do well because you're deflating bubbles. Well, high-quality bonds are the safe haven because they like deflation. Interest rates go even lower with deflation than they did in low inflation. Government and high quality bonds don't default like, corp like co corporate bonds and especially junk bonds, which are the dominant bonds now out there today in the private sector. So they're the safe haven as they were, AAA corporate and, and treasury bonds pretty much roughly doubled in value in the 1930s when you count the, the uh, interest while most assets deflated and, 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 and did terrible. So, so it's the best place to be the only place in, in real estate, not only because of demographics, but more so it's also the safe haven, cash flow positive real estate. When the economy collapses, banks get even tighter in lending, as we know from 2008 and nine, people are scared to buy and they rent even more. And these, these <clears throat> aging baby boomers will do the same. And these millennials will continue to postpone on. So, so real uh, apartment rental, Multifamily real estate holds up the best and may even appreciate a bit, but certainly with your rentals, if it's cash flow positive. Now, if you're in California or Manhattan or certain bubbly areas and you have to rent at negative cash flow and are relying on the appreciation, then that's the wrong stuff. But if you have cash flow positive real estate in not so bubbly areas, you have the baby boomers now on an increasing renting trend that's never happened in history to replace the, the millennials. And you have the millennials who are going to continue to rent versus buy uh, in this downturn. So that is, those are the only places I recommend high quality bonds and, and cash flow positive rental real estate. Everything else is going to get clobbered. The mansions are going to get clobbered the most in real estate. Commercial always gets clobbered the most. And, of course, the stock market gets clobbered the most, as it did from 1929 to 32. Harry, how do, we get that, how do we get that report you're talking about 
the one the one uh, regarding the um, older people uh, moving into apartment buildings instead of downsizing uh, uh, into smaller homes. Uh, Buck, I will send that to you and you can make it available to your listeners. Okay, fantastic. And so the book uh, obviously is zero hour available uh, everywhere, including Amazon. Um, I, uh, I, I, especially, I, I, uh, I also would like to recommend the uh, demographic cliff in, in 2015. Cause I think that's really interesting stuff that, you know, most people don't cover. And I think it's um, absolutely fascinating. Yeah, that, That's the most global outlook, which I agree with is important for people to get. The other thing we have, Buck, is I have a free dailies newsletter. You just go to harrydent.com, put in your web, you know, your email and you're on. And that, that way you can get to know us and, and get some updates about what we're thinking. Cause you're right. This peaking process is very hard to predict, especially when governments are fighting it tooth and nail, but they are fighting a losing war like any addict because there's diminishing returns to taking more and more of a lethal drug to keep you from coming down from a high. And we are high on this bubble and people are high. And you know, when people are high on a bubble, you can't talk them out of it. You know, the hardest thing for me to talk rich people out of is the most bubbly real estate in the most bubbly cities like London, Manhattan, San Francisco, Sydney, Australia, where I'm going next week to do a two-week tour and, and, and places like that. People just think that can never go down, and you couldn't be more wrong. The, the Fortune 500 are buying back their own stocks at way overvalued using their precious cash flow. They're going to need to survive this shakeout, and then their shareholders can be saying, well, why didn't you buy our stocks when it was down 80% instead of when they were overvalued? You squandered all of our cash flow and killed our companies. The rich are the dumb money this time around, Buck. I've never seen that happen before. It's not shoeshine boys. It's not Homer Simpson or taxi drivers from the tech wreck boom, which, which I saw at that time. It's the richest people are buying into this bubble, and they're going to get crucified the most. So the people like your people who are into the safer cash flow positive real estate and high quality bonds are going to preserve their capital and be able to buy at the sale of a lifetime, I think by 2022 to 23 and get in the right markets for the future, which are very clear. If you look at our books and newsletter, harrydent.com is where you go to get that newsletter. Uh, Harry, I would love to have you back on when the new book comes out that you, uh, you said that might be coming out sometime next year. Uh, we definitely appreciate uh, all of your perspective today. Okay, and I'll, I'll send you that report. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I love talking to guys like Harry Dent. They're super smart. So um, now listen, you know, and I've said this before, I'm not necessarily in um, the same camp as, you know, as Harry and 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 maybe Peter Schiff and some of these guys who really I think are expecting a huge problem, like you know the zombie apocalypse. And what do I know? You know I'm a doctor, but I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, sure I think there's likely some kind of recession is coming up, and I can't predict when it's going to happen, and I can't predict how deep it's going to be. Uh, so what am I going to do? I'm certainly not sitting idle. You know people have done that for the last five years. And let me tell you, they have lost a ton, a ton of money, and they've lost a ton of opportunity doing that. So the key to surviving downturns, in my humble opinion, is to invest, continue to invest, you know, in a, in a in almost like a volume averaging approach 
Uh, just keep looking at high quality assets and high quality areas. Don't over leverage, have a plan to increase the value of your asset along the way uh, so that you're constantly de-risking. For me, of course, you probably know that's mostly in value add real estate, value add working class housing, apartment buildings. And in this regard, actually, the good news is it sounds like Harry Dent seems to think that we're in pretty good shape for those of us who do lots of this through our accredited investor club. When he says, by the way, cash flowing property, what he's really talking about is the fact that, you know, you're not counting on only appreciation uh, for the value of the property. In our investor club models, for example, we create value from day one um, by increasing cash flow and decompressing cap rates. And again, essentially what that does is it de-risks investments, right? Um, it de-risks from day one as you start that value add process and makes the entire thing more stable. In fact, if you can refi and pull out all of your invested capital initially, which we often do in the types of things that we do in Investor Club, you can take all your risk on, off the table and then you only have upside. Anyway, one last comment I have on uh, Harry Dent's interview. Now, I, as much as I, you know, these guys, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't pretend to have the same kind of macroeconomic knowledge as Harry Dent, Peter Schiff, and those guys. But I have to tell you that in my personal opinion, I just don't see how true nominal deflation can ever happen in our lifetime. I really just don't see it. And what do I mean by nominal? I mean the numbers, right? Because when you see GDP growing, it's as much right now, it's mostly from printing money, as Harry said, right? I mean, it's it's from inflation. GDP grows from inflation and then from true increases in output. So the, the that combination is what the, you know, the nominal or the number only a number is. And I just can't see that number going, um, you know, negative. You know, printing money and quantitative easing has staved off significant deflationary forces so far. Uh, and, you know, here he's right. I mean, it hasn't created, you know, significant amounts of inflation, which you might expect. But remember that money didn't go to mom and pop spenders. They went to banks and the banks wouldn't lend. And it you know, it, it sort of didn't do any anybody any good. The people ended up borrowing that money were people on Wall Street buying back their own stocks and leveraging and, and created massive amounts of uh, profitability in, in the financial services industry. Um, but you see, there is this thing called helicopter money. That's what Ben Bernanke called it, right? It's basically bypassing the banks and putting money into the hands of consumers. And... Um, that has not really happened. And if that happens, I think that's a very, in my opinion, I don't know how that could not in, it result in nominal inflation. Um, and what is the likelihood of that? Well, look at what Trump's talking about right now. He's talking about potentially cutting payroll taxes, in which case, again, that is doing exactly that. It's putting money directly in the hands of consumers and um, and then making them, you know, that, then they can spend it and then that increases and that will result in inflation. At least in my opinion, I think that will work uh, to do that. Uh, but listen, I think that fiscal and monetary policy will do anything. The U.S. will do anything and everything to prevent any sort of true nominal 
deflation. Why? Because remember, what does inflation do? Inflation erodes debt, right? So if you borrowed $100,000 back in 1980, guess what? That $100,000 that you borrowed is worth a heck of a lot less now in 2019 than you borrowed it in 1980, right? So it is eroding. And why is that? Because of inflation, right? That $100,000 of debt is, you know, might have had the buying uh, effect of a million dollars back in the 1980s, but now it doesn't have that same thing. So bottom line is inflation erodes debt. And to me, you have to look at what that means for an economy. And why do I say that fiscal and monetary policy will be geared in such a way to do everything to prevent true nominal deflation? Because if they don't, the government will be unable to pay its sovereign debt, right? That's how we pay our debt off right now. We inflate. We inflate, and then we erode the debt, and then we pay with inflated dollars. I mean, that's the only way the U.S. is paying it off right now. So in my humble, you know, non-economist view, uh, you would see incredible, uh, you know, stuff before that. I mean, I, I really believe that in— Again, listen, I am not an economist, but I truly believe that before you had any sort of significant deflationary environment, nominal deflationary environment, you would see congressional law go and erase all debt, all sovereign debt of the U.S. to itself. And you would see the, the government and the powers that be, um, you know, uh, do that before they would ever see the U.S default on its own sovereign debt. But again, what do I know? I'm just a doctor. Either way, investing in apartment buildings, though, just a reminder, sounds like the way to go. If you talk to me, you talk to Harry Dent, etc., and that's what we do in Investor Club, so make sure you join Investor Club at WealthFormula.com today. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.